you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a good start. As Suzanne just mentioned, we're going to be talking about the Oscar nominations, which came out just a few hours ago, announced in Hollywood, and of course, the focus of the world's attention coming up in early March. We're going to be doing our Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles the week prior to the Oscars. But let's talk about the films that have been honored in the major categories. Um, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer leading the pack with 13 nominations. Joining us to talk about the results, Angelique Jackson, who's senior entertainment writer at Variety. Angelique, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful morning. Obviously, of course, a busy one. Yes, a very busy one. I'm sure you were up extremely early. So we have 10 films, uh, the maximum in the Best Picture category, including American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. Of these 10, anything stand out to you as a particular surprise? You know what? I think a lot of people were hoping to see films like Anatomy of a Fall and Zone of Interest get in because, of course, these are both two international films. But I think it's also very exciting to see Barbie. Listen, I know it was a $1.4 billion movie, but the Academy has not often, um, the Academy has not often recognized such blockbusters. It's actually part of the reason why we now have 10 nominees. So it's really important that we see a film like that also included. Uh, but I think that was pretty expected, as was Oppenheimer, which dominated with 13 nods. Those two movies were the two big cultural juggernauts of 2023. So it would have been a huge surprise not to see them among that lineup. And of course, the other nine films joining Oppenheimer, uh, most of those having multiple nominations, as you would expect because of the critical acclaim for so many of those films. Also with us is our Film Week critic, Claudia Puig, program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival that's coming up. Claudia, so good to have you with us. Your thoughts about first these these 10 films in the best picture category well great to be here larry um and yeah i don't think there were a lot of surprises in the best picture nominee uh, category i think maybe zone of interest and anatomy of fall were slightly surprises um and um the rest you know we absolutely we more or less expected i think the surprises came more with the best director category um and uh, that was, um, you know, you did it, you saw Greta Gerwig not get nominated for Best Director, even though, of course, Barbie did get nominated. Um, you didn't see Alexander Payne get nominated, even though The Holdovers got nominated. Um, and you saw Justine Trier get in with Anatomy of a Fall, which um, 
was a lovely surprise and Jonathan Glazer with Zone of Interest. So I think the, it seems like the Academy is embracing more foreign films um, and more unusual films like Poor Things, Poor Things. Um, and just generally, um, for me, the only one that I thought was a, was a huge uh, omission was All of Us Strangers, which I thought deserved to be in the best picture but it, uh, list, but it just never got the traction. It didn't get the momentum yeah. going. Nor did Andrew Scott, the star of the film, oh, uh, end up with a nomination in the best actor yes. category. But I think, you know, not enough, it's a terrific film and just not enough people saw it. Absolutely. I, I think Andrew Scott's performance was one of the best of the year, and I, it just breaks my heart that it, he wasn't nominated, but I think you're absolutely right. It just didn't, not enough people saw it, people didn't really understand what it was about with based on the title, and it just kind of fell in the, you know, sort of through the cracks, which is unfortunate. Um, other than that, I think, you know, with Past Lives and some of the other ones, uh, I was so happy to see get in. I think it's it's a really great list of films with the exception of that one. Well, and we always have because there are only five slots for directors and there are up to 10 slots for films. So you're always going to have half of the directors of Best Picture nominees not included. But uh, Angelique, there's there's been a lot of rumbling about um, there not being a best director nomination for Barbie, and and you know for real fans of that movie, um, you know the idea that that you know she should have gotten a nomination for that. Appointment to not see Greta Gerwig in the best director category for Barbie. While of course it is wonderful to see Justin Justine Trier get in and Jonathan Glazer get in as well. You know we're we're excited about seeing uh, this uh, recognition of the international films, but. It's sort of like last year with Denis Villeneuve. You have a film that sweeps the nominations like Dune and the director doesn't get nominated. Uh, the same thing is somewhat true for Barbie. Barbie did not get quite as many nominations as had been expected before, but Greta had been nominated in many of the most important precursors, including getting the Directors Guild of America nominee. It's nomination. Um, and it's also disappointing because there does often seem to be this idea that only one woman director can get in at a time. We've only had two women directors nominated in the same year once in 2020 with... Um, it, so it's it was very surprising not to see Greta Gerwig get into this category. But kind of on that note about women directors, there was a record set this year that three out of the 10 of those Best Picture nominees were directed by women, uh, of course, adding in Celine Song's Past Lives. So there's progress in some senses. Uh, but there's also a, a significant amount of disappointment, I think, today as well. Yeah, I mean, for myself, I actually would have picked Celine's song uh, uh, over Greta Gerwig in the director category, just my personal opinion about it. Despite the popularity of Barbie, I thought Song's accomplishment with the performances of those actors um, and and uh, the beauty of that film was just very impressive. And, you know, she's a first-time director, uh, and what a stunning debut. I'd like to hear from listeners. We're going to go through other categories. What you think of the picks of the Motion Picture Academy. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So let us know, are there films you would have liked to have seen in the Best Picture category? 
are there performances uh, or directing honors that you would have liked to have seen for people in uh, who were not included? 866-893-5722 or atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Let's take a look at the, the leading performances. Actress in a leading role, the nominees were Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Hewler in Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan in Maestro, and Emma Stone in Poor Things. Claudia, your thoughts about this? Uh, Annette Bening's performance in Nyad I thought was tremendous. It was. It was, and it's nice to see her nominated. Um, you know, of course, Lily Gladstone's is the big historic uh, nomination because she is the first Native American uh, nominated for an acting category. Uh, so that's huge and long overdue. Um, Sandra Hewler, I think, might have been a little bit of a surprise, but of course she had two amazing performances with this in Zone of Interest. Um, I think it's Emma Stone's to lose, uh, but you know, I think it's possible that any of the others, particularly Lily, I think, could could get uh, some traction there. And I was just going to say, when we were talking about Greta Gerwig, you know, yes, she was overlooked for director, but she is also the first director to have her first three solo directorial projects nominated for Best Picture. So she's certainly, um, you know, that's that's huge. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's you know something, and of course she was nominated for screenplay. But her um, talent is unassailable. <laughs> yes, let's, let's yes. put it that way. <laughs> that is very true. That's a good way to put it, Larry. <laughs> All right. Again, I'd love to hear from AirTalk listeners your thoughts about the Oscar nominations. We're at eight six six eight nine three five seven two two eight six six eight nine three five seven two two, or you can email us at atcomments at las dot com. Please include your location and first name. Actor in a leading role. The nominees are Bradley Cooper in Maestro for, of course, his performance as Leonard Bernstein, a film that he also directed. Uh, Coleman Domingo in Rustin. Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers. Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer and Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. Angelique, uh, please share with us uh, your thoughts on the acting category. Again, some stellar performances. Both the actor and actress category were were complete uh, were completely stacked this year. So no matter who got in, it was going to be incredible. I know you mentioned uh, Andrew Scott not getting in. That was of course a bummer. But at Leonardo DiCaprio also missed in this category. But these are some of the most stellar performances of the year. It really feels like this is Paul Giamatti's prize to lose with the holdovers. He is very much the front runner. But Killian Murphy could also come in with this surprise first time. Well, I guess I shouldn't say it's, it's not a surprise first time nomination. But the fact that he uh, is finally being awarded could also be a reason uh, for him to maybe you know sneak in and take the prize. But there's also so many other wonderful bits of um, you know, acknowledgement here. For example, Coleman Domingo in playing Bayard Rustin oh. is one of the only openly gay actors playing an openly gay um, real, real life person in this case to be nominated for best actor. And I believe also the first Afro-Latino actor to be nominated in this category. So he's making history in all sorts of ways, but it's just, uh, I, th I think it's one of those categories where Every single one of these performances is so stellar that no matter who walks home with the prize, 
folks will be pleased. It was a movie I loved, Rustin, and a performance that's just great. For those listeners who missed my interview of Coleman Domingo, please uh, go to LAist.com. You can find the interview there. We will be reprising the interviews that I've done with the uh, Oscar nominees to this point as well, so you'll be hearing those on Film Week. Again, we're at 866-893-5722. Fernando in Northridge said, I was disappointed that Greta Lee didn't get nominated uh, for Best Actress for Past Lives, but the category seems so, so competitive. Uh, Certainly, it was a great performance, Claudia. Absolutely. I was very disappointed about that, too. I thought she was amazing. And like you, I would have loved to have seen Celine Song in the Best Director category. Um, that's, you know, one of my top three films of the year. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful film. And I think readily deserved it, but I'm sure she has a long, illustrious career ahead of her and we will see her nominated. But I, I agree that that was an omission. In the uh, uh, actor uh, supporting role, I was disappointed that uh, Greta Lee's co-star, Teo Yu, was not nominated. I thought his performance was every bit the equal of Lee's and called on tremendous subtlety. Uh, Claudia, I, I thought he was terrific. And he was. I was disappointed yes. he wasn't here. I was too, yeah. Uh, you know, and all the ones that, that did get nominated um, were, most of them are worthy. Uh, you know, they're all people we expected, um, but I would have loved to have seen him in there. I think maybe the, you know, people thought Willem Dafoe might have gotten nominated for yeah. uh, Poor Things too, but um, but I've always, I love Mark Ruffalo. I think he's such a good actor, so I was happy to see him in there. I thought, um, I thought he, <laughs> to me, he was so funny in Poor Things. Uh, he it's was. just a, a standout <laughs> performance. We should share who the other actor in a supporting role nominees are. They are Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things, Ryan Gosling in Barbie, Robert Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer, and Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower and Moon, and in American fiction, Sterling K. Brown. Angelique, uh, your thoughts about the supporting actor category? Well, I was thrilled especially to hear Sterling K. Brown's name called for this film. Uh, This is, of course, his first nomination as well, and it was part of a huge showing for American fiction with five nominations. Uh, That film was kind of a a bit of an underdog, but has proven uh, to be a really strong contender, also getting a nomination in adapted screenplay for Cord Jefferson. It's personally one of my favorite films of the year, and I think um, Sterling K. Brown's performance is so subtle and, and heart felt uh, that I, it was really lovely to see it recognized. But it's so interesting about the acting categories this year because there were so many tremendous performances. And a lot of times with one actor potentially, you know, representing for the whole group. Uh, of course, my my example of that is Danielle Brooks as supporting actress in The Color Purple, a film that I would have loved to have seen not recognized in Best Picture this year, but just never really gained the traction. However, she, you know, did manage to um, you know, work her way in with that incredible performance as Sophia, kind of matching what Oprah Winfrey did back in 1985. So it's just really, you know, it, so many of these performances this year were just just kind of undeniable. So it's nice to see a performance like hers or a performance like Sterling's 
um, still managed to mm -hmm. break through. We'll continue uh, with our critics uh, and our experts on the Oscars and your picks as well. We'll talk with Kristen in Commerce when we come back. And we'll continue with our Claudia Puig of Film Week and Angelique uh, Jackson, senior entertainment writer at Variety. We'll talk about that uh, actress in a supporting role category and hear who all of uh, the actors are that uh, are honored there. It's Air Talk on LA, 89.3, the Oscars out this morning, and your chance to weigh in at 866. 893-5722 or AT comments at LAS.com. Back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with our film week critic Claudia Puig and from Variety, senior entertainment writer. Angelique Jackson with us. Kristen in Commerce, what for you was the biggest omission of the Oscar nominations announced this morning? Good morning. Good morning, Larry. Um, the biggest omission for me was May-December. I feel like it was super underrated, especially all the acting with Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and newcomer Charles Melton. I think it's Todd Haynes' best work in a really long time, so I was really surprised that it did it didn't get any nominations whatsoever. Yeah, Kristen, uh, you mentioned some tremendous performance. Charles Melton was absolutely great. Um, and Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, as they always are, is so good. I almost wonder if their excellence um, is so expected that that in some way hurt them here. Angelique, your, your thoughts about May-December not being included? That was definitely one of the, the biggest kind of shockers and, and sad ones as well, especially for Charles Melton, who had been so strong in the early predictors. His performance is just absolutely incredible. But of course, as a newer, younger actor, sometimes, you know, other flashier names get the nod instead. Um, but yes, they're they're. There, Mary December, of course, did get a screenplay nomination, which was great and nice to know that, you know, the film will go recognized in some way. But I think people expected it to have a lot more traction, especially with big names like Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore involved. And so I, I think I agree. That is definitely one mm -hmm. of the sad surprises of the day. Uh, in the uh, actress in a supporting role category, the nominees are Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer, Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple, America Ferreira in Barbie, Jodie Foster in Nyad, and Devine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers. Or uh, Dave, is it Davine? I'm sorry. I yes. Forgot. Yeah, Davine. Davine. Yes, Davine. I'm sorry. I knew it was not Divine, and then I botched it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Davine Joy Randolph of The Holdovers with a wonderful performance in, in that film. Uh, so five strong uh, nominees there, Claudia. Yes, very much so. And, um, you know, with America Ferreira's uh, nomination, that is, uh, she is one of only two Latinos nominated in the in the uh, main acting categories. Coleman Domingo is, is Afro-Latino. Um, and I, that was a really nice thing to see. Danielle Brooks was wonderful. Um, Jodie Foster, there's been, you know, of course has been nominated and won before, but there's, it's been 29 years since she was nominated uh, for the last film she was nominated for, which was Nell um, in 1994. So it's really nice to see her in there as well. Um, it was such a wonderful performance. She's great. But, you know, Davine has been sort of um, leading 
all the awards up until now. So I think that was that was one of the absolute sure things was that she was going to be in there. Um, yeah. And her performance was wonderful. Yeah. So really was. It's a, yeah, it's a great category. All right. Uh, we're talking about the major categories in the Oscars. Um, uh, Tanya in uh, North Hollywood says, I really thought Ava DuVernay's film Origin was one of the most important films of the year. I think it should have gotten a nod. I thought uh, Aunt Janu Ellis's performance was so great. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, uh, uh, Tanya. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Kathy in Studio City emailed, I knew it was unlikely, but Ellis Taylor's performance in Origin was really special. I wish she'd gotten more attention, so that's a couple of uh, of pushes for uh, Ellis Taylor's performance. Uh, Manny, our AirTalk producer, said, I'm disappointed Killers of the Flower Moon didn't get an adapted screenplay nod. I found it to be a great building off of David Grant's original book, certainly highlighted more of Osage Nation than the book did. Glad the film got as many nominations as it did, though. That's our producer, Manny. And Judy and Sherman Oaks said, I was a Amazed by Bradley Cooper in Maestro, both his acting and direction, I can't understand why he doesn't get more buzz on this and why he didn't get a Director's Guild nomination blows my mind. Uh, Angelique, uh, your thoughts about uh, Cooper and and why there hasn't been more buzz for his direction? That is... Uh, the directing category this year uh, it is... It's so interesting. <laughs> the directing category this year feels just as stacked as actor and actress. And we have issues where not everybody is able to uh, make it into the category. I thought that Bradley Cooper absolutely conducted an orchestra of a film when it came to directing Maestro. So I was hugely disappointed not to see him get in. But it was sort of for the same reasons that Greta did not. It feels like that they awarded... The, the, the film in other places. So of course, Greta getting the Adapted Screenplay nomination and Best Picture while Bradley Cooper was nominated for his acting. Um, it, it, it's really it's really difficult and, and similar to as well, uh, Manny, what you mentioned with the Killers, of the, Flower Moon, the Killers of the Flower Moon Adapted Screenplay Prize. When Barbie moved from original screenplay to adapted screenplay, that made that category all the more stacked and made it more difficult for a film like Killers of Flower Moon, which was also fantastic to maybe get that slot. Um, and I just wanted to address the ingenue Ellis Taylor of it all as well. Um, Origin will probably go down as one of the biggest disappointments of this year's Oscar season because it is an absolutely tremendous film. And when I walked out of seeing that 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 film and particularly that performance, I thought Anjanou Ellis Taylor could have Best Actress completely sewn up, especially after coming off of her Academy Award nominated performance in King Richard. So it is it's really um, unfortunate that that film never really gained the traction that it needed to uh, to make it a real contender in this race. We've just been talking about also some of the writing honors uh, you referenced. Let's look at adapted screenplay, American fiction, uh, Cord Jefferson's uh, script there, uh, Barbie, Greta Gerwig, and Noah Baumbach collaborating, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan himself, Poor Things, Tony McNamara, and The Zone of Interest, the director, Jonathan Glazer there. Um, how is it that Barbie ends up, uh, Angelique, in adapted screenplay since there's no book it's based on it's just a toy 
Great question. Uh, so what's interesting about um, the, the the categorizations is that every awards nominating body can make the decision for themselves. So where the WGA considers it to be an original screenplay, which was what Warner Brothers and Mattel and the filmmakers were originally pushing for, because as you said, there is no real, um, there, there, there's nothing it's really adapted from aside from the toy itself. The story is entirely original and formed by Greta Gorig and Noah Baumbach as they uh, created, you know, what would be the background for why to even make a Barbie movie. But it was determined by the Academy's body that because there was existing IP around the doll itself and that it's, you know, kind of based on the doll from Mattel, that it would be into the adapted screenplay category. It's kind of one of the big, you know, controversies of award season conversation. All right. Uh, original screenplay, Anatomy of a Fall, Justine Trier and Arthur Harari wrote that. The Holdovers, David Hemmingson, Maestro, Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer. May, December, uh, the screenplay by Sammy Birch, uh, taken from a story that he and Alex uh, Mechanic wrote and Past Lives. It's the director's Celine Song. Claudia, your thoughts about original screenplay? Yeah, I think that's a great category and it doesn't have the controversy, you know, of, of Barbie in it, although I think that's that's kind of crazy. But, you know, I think the writers, the writers strike, I think we need to talk about the strikes because the writers strike itself did not affect the Oscars uh, or at least Oscar campaigning. But the actor strike, I think one of the reasons why we were just talking about origin being left out and earlier we mentioned all the strangers, I think, you know, because that didn't end until November 9th, it started in mid July, there was, you know, people weren't able to get up a lot of the films weren't able to get the uh, sort of momentum that they could have and origin just came out last week too so I think that was a one of the problems for that film. Um, but uh, going back to the discussion of original screenplay, I think those are great choices. Um, I think, you know, The Holdovers, it was such a fresh, uh, really wonderful movie. Anatomy of a Fall is so twisty and, and suspenseful. Um, I'm not a huge fan of May, December, but I, I think the, that it was right to get in this uh, particular category. I'm also not a big fan of Maestro's, but I, Maestro, but I am a big fan of Past Lives. Mm. Angelique, how do you think the dual strikes affected the field of, of Oscar nominations, you know, with, with, particularly with actors not able to promote so many of these films when they were released? I think it, it contributed significantly. So you look at the, the way the field kind of played out. Barbie and Oppenheimer were premiering in the summer and they were some of the last films to get their kind of big red carpet real debuts where movies, uh, you know, for example, The Color Purple, The Color Purple uh, came in just under the radar. At, at they, they premiered uh, their first uh, big Academy screening uh, just days after uh, the the strike ended and fortunately they premiered the film uh, in late December so enough people had kind of been able to see it for Danielle to get in but because of the strikes and people not being able to promote their films for so long a lot of things either flew under the radar or kind of got uh, their their uh, they kind of got their wings a little bit late so you have a, a film like All of Us Strangers that is kind of competing for attention with the resurgence of Barbie and Oppenheimer who are now not on their promotional leg for just, you know, getting out into theaters, but they're now on, you know, fully focused on awards campaigning. So it's kind of one of those things that the timing of all of this has made 
um, it has made things just very different. It, it's been a very different award season and it's going to kind of continue to be so as we move towards March. Um, but I guess in, in some ways there is a little bit of excitement because we didn't really know how today was going to pan out and how things like the strike were going to affect some of the chances for films. We're talking with Angelique Jackson, senior entertainment writer at Variety, and our Claudia Puig, Film Week critic and program director of the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. Uh, let me share what the animated feature films were that were nominated with this morning's announcement. Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, the Disney Pixar. Pixar film Elemental, uh, Nimona, Robot Dreams, and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. In fact, we're going to be talking with the three directors of that film coming up on this week's Film Week here on LAist 89.3. Uh, and uh, we have Uzi in Long Beach who asks, um, could you touch on what the criteria are for Academy members to vote on the films. Uh, Angelique, can you share with us what what they have to do to uh, to do their voting? Sure. Well, what's interesting about the, the various voting um, for the Academy Awards is that each one of the branches of the Academy votes for the specific prizes. So that means actors vote for actors. Uh, directors vote for directors. That's why, you know, something with Greta Gerwig, for example, getting the best, uh, the director nomination by the Directors Guild of America and missing here is so surprising because that body recognized her and then this body did not. Um, but when it comes to Best Picture, the entire Academy votes on that prize. So that's the one that's kind of like the most representative of what this entire, you know, multiple thousand person body is, 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 uh, thinking are the best films of the year. But it, it, it's also why you sometimes see um, different movies. For example, I, I keep mentioning Danielle Brooks and The Color Purple, but it's why you see, you know, her nomination cut through there um, in the Actors' Prizes because her fellow actors voted for her, but the film itself did not get the same amount of push from all of the branches of the Academy. Tom in Los Angeles says Andrew Scott for All of Us Strangers is inexplicably left out of both the BAFTAs and now the Oscars. The whole supporting cast and screenplay were so focused and poignant. Audra McDonald is fantastic in both Rustin and Origin. And I want to say how strange it is that Ava DuVernay is consistently snubbed. That's Tom in Los Angeles. I want to thank you both so much for being with us and, and talking about the Oscar nomination. It's a real pleasure. Angelique Jackson is senior entertainment writer at the trade publication Variety and Claudia Puig, our LAist uh, Film Week critic. Thank you, Claudia, so much. Claudia is going to be one of the 10 critics on stage at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles for our annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. It's coming right up on Sunday, March 3rd, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You can get your tickets now by going to LAist.com slash events. That's LAist.com slash events. I'm so excited for this year's event because with the broad range of films that we have, the great performances this year, all these terrific categories, so many interesting things to talk about, and our critics are going to have at it on stage. We'll have clips of the Best Picture nominees on the big screen at the Orpheum as well. So please join us Sunday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, March 3rd, at the Historic Orpheum on Broadway, downtown L.A., LAist.com slash events. 
More to come on uh, Air Talk as we discuss self-checkout in supermarkets and drugstores and why retailers are re-examining it. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. I've been corrected. I I forgot we have an additional critic. There'll be 11 critics on stage because <laughs> we have Manuel Betancourt, who's a member of our Film Week critical team. So uh, that'll be great. It'll be his first year at the Film Week Academy Awards preview, our 22nd annual event. Well, self-checkout is loved by some because it can help speed the process of making purchases at a grocery or drugstore. For others, they avoid it at all costs. They don't like having to deal with it and also appreciate even the social interaction of going through a check stand with an actual human checker. But uh, retailers are starting to rethink what they thought would be the payroll advantages of self-checkout. Joining us to talk about some of those concerns is Christopher Andrews, Drew University professor of sociology and author of The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkout, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. Christopher, thank you very much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I was I was reading this story uh, that uh, is about uh, you know self checkouts starting to fall by the wayside, and I was just curious about you know some of the reasons why retailers seem to have a harder time securing against theft in self checkout, and why it's so difficult to fully automate it. Why it needs so much human intervention to get to get it right. <laughs> Well, self-checkouts are one of a series of innovations that retail stores have been experimenting with dating back to the early 20th century. Uh, The ones that we're familiar with that were designed and patented in the 1990s and largely introduced in 2000s were originally sold to retailers as a way to automate the front end of the store to reduce the number of cashiers they would need to hire but I don't think they anticipated how they would actually work in stores, that many of us would need help or intervention in using the technology, as well as the potential for abusing the technology through shoplifting. Yeah, and and so you, what has thought would be a cost saving isn't necessarily proving to be true. What are some of the advances in self-checkout that have been made over over time? How has the technology evolved? 
Well, the technology has evolved uh, to incorporate new and ongoing innovations in things like uh, weights and scales and lasers and optical scanners. Uh, the technology was originally marketed as being more secure than a human operated cashier. Uh, but as I was told by store managers, uh, the stores are constantly in this cat and mouse game of trying to find new ways to prevent people from stealing uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Mm -hmm. We're at 866-893-5722. For you to weigh in about self-checkout, I'm someone who actually likes it. I like having the option of it because yeah, I do find that it saves time in most cases. Of course, if you have something that that um, the self-checkout terminal glitches on and you have to have a person come over and help, you know, then it can bog you down. But if you got a long line at the supermarket or drugstore, it can be a much more easy efficient way of checking out. But I'd like to hear from you. 866-893-5722. Do you gravitate towards self-checkout? Do you absolutely avoid it at all costs that you'll stand in a 20-minute line to get your groceries rather than do a self-checkout that you could do in a fraction of that time just because you like the interaction with the cashier and you'll you'll actually do that? 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. If you work for a retailer who uses self-checkout, I'd be interested to hear what your experience of it is and what are the biggest uh, problems that people have using the technology for self-checkout. What do you see? If you're assisting people who get bogged down on the technology, share with us what the biggest problems are. 866-893-5722. Also tell us if uh, you have seen an increase in theft surrounding the use of self-checkout uh, and it, uh, if it seems it hasn't provided the labor savings that were touted for the technology. Again, you can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Was the Great Recession the real driver of the expansion in self-checkout? I, I think part of it was. I think we just lost Professor Andrews. We'll see about getting him back. Uh, Christopher Andrews, professor of sociology at Drew University and author, uh, author of The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkout, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. Uh, professor Andrews, you cut out on us, so uh, please start that answer again, please. Oh, so... Uh... Part of it is uh, technological. Uh, the technology continues to be refined, but I think part of it was also increasing pressure on retailers to cut costs uh, because Walmart, uh, I was told, is the proverbial 800-pound gorilla in the retail food industry. All right. Uh, 866-893-5722. I, I, over the uh, holiday season, I was visiting with my in-laws and their coffee maker went out. So I was buying a new coffee maker at Target. And the line for the human checkout was just, was terrible. So, and it was a bad line for the self-checkout, but I decided I was going to use it. But then I foolishly when I was scanning and it asked for me to scan um, for what had the serial number information, I accidentally hit the scan again 
for uh, the the product code, not for the serial number code. And so instead of just asking me, no, no, that's the wrong code, it didn't have the capability of doing that. So I had to wait for the target employee to talk with three other people who had bogged down at self-checkout like me, then get over to me undo what I did and allow me to complete the purchase. It would have been great if we just said, no, that's the wrong code, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it couldn't, it wasn't able to process it in that sophisticated a way. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include uh, your location and first name. Damien in South Los Angeles. Good to have you with us. So what do you think about self-checkout? Well, I love it, you know, because sometimes, you know, you go to a place like, let's say, for example, Costco, right? And, and I'm only trying to, you know, walk out with one or three items. I'm not, you know, but I have to stand in a line with somebody who has like, you know, 30, 50 items. And, and it makes no sense, you know, why not make it easy for somebody that, you know, has a simple one or two items, you know, to pay for and, you know, the lines are always, you know, always move really fast because they don't have a bunch of items. And as long as people know how to use the technology, you know, the line just keeps going. Of course, you know, once in a while you get somebody that doesn't know how to use it. But that's like anything, right? People, you know, you introduce something new and yeah. people have to learn how to use it. But but I love it because it makes the process fast, simple, efficient for me. You know, but then, of course, you know, there's always going to be those people that abuse it. And, yeah. you know, they're going to pretend like they're paying, like you're mentioning, right, the, the shoplifting that's the Retailers are realizing that they're, you know, it's it's not uh, maybe as cost as effective as they thought they were because somebody may be, you know, pretending to pay for three items, but they actually only paid for one. Yeah. But- Damien, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Excellent points that you make, Damien, in South L.A., 866-893-5722. Scott in Compton, please share with us your thoughts about self-checkout. Do you use it? Hi, Larry. Hi, Larry. Thank you for taking my call. You know, I really enjoy self-checkout, especially for smaller purchases. When I just have one to three, maybe four items, I love it because you just get in, take care of your purchase, and get out the door. What I do find, though, is when there is a problem, whether you've got a large purchase or a small purchase, the people that are helping you, which at my supermarkets, when I go to, are usually the same people that act as cashiers, seem to have a little difficulty with the technology as a whole. So to me, it appears that maybe they haven't been trained as thoroughly as they could be on the technology to help support the yeah. consumer or the person that's trying to solve checkout. That's that's a very good point, Scott. Thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Shelly in Studio City emailed, I love self-checkout, especially if I'm in a rush. And I always know that if I want or need human interaction, and there's always a store representative there to assist, a win-win all the way around. 866-893-5722. Uh, let's talk with a critic of self-checkout, Anthony in San Pedro. Nice to have you with us. What is it you don't like about the technology? Uh, hi, Larry. Uh, so, like you mentioned, you know, if you want somebody, to, if you want that human interaction, there's always someone to to be there in the store, and I've just found that it, it seems like because of self-checkout, management has essentially relied on the self-checkout to do the job, and they don't employ enough people in the store, and I think, you know, for me, like, I have a lot of produce all the time, and I don't like going through self-checkout, Yeah. and for me, I think we should just employ more humans in general, and, uh, you know, to prevent AI from taking all of our jobs, so that's 
that's about it. I'd like to demand that we have grocery store workers. So. I appreciate it, Anthony. Thanks so much. And I have to say, the, the grocery store that I go to has the best cashiers. They're terrific and uh, and really fun to talk to. And they, it's amazing how many of the customers they represent. And you figured the thousands of people that, that an individual checkout counter uh, worker sees over the course of a week, very impressive, their ability to remember people. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and, and first name. Myra in Long Beach echoing our last caller saying, I seldom use self-checkout because I'm thinking about workers losing their jobs. Uh, similarly, Wes in Palm Springs, I'm not in favor. It takes jobs away from people that could use them. Those people pay taxes and spend money in our community. Machines don't do that. <laughs> Excellent point, Wes. 866 866- Six eight nine three five seven two two. We're going to take a brief break. We'll continue with more listener calls and with our expert guest, who's written a book on the history of self-checkout. It's titled "The Overworked Consumer." Professor Christopher Andrews of Drew University. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. So good to have you with us as we're talking about self-checkout and some retailers questioning whether it's truly the economic benefit they thought it would be that because of theft and concerns it's easier for customers to be able to um, not scan items and just take them in their bag along with things that they are paying for. Also concerns about the amount of personnel necessary to help people who get stuck at a self-checkout kiosk because the technology breaks or the customer does something that causes the purchase to to bind up and not be able to proceed. Drew University professor of sociology Christopher Andrews with us. Is there a generational difference at all, professor, in um, people who are comfortable with self-checkout? Uh, research actually finds that there are fairly consistent attitudes across age groups. Uh, roughly a quarter to a third of American consumers across age groups strongly dislike self-checkout lanes. But as your callers indicated, there are also customers that prefer and enjoy using self-checkout lanes. All right. Uh, also, I'm I'm interested in in about the costs of this because you know I'm sure that for the retailers they thought oh you know we'll make the expenditure for this we won't have ongoing salaries that we have to pay for it but um, is the technology itself proving to be more expensive than was originally thought? Yes, it is. I think they originally thought that they would reduce labor costs by replacing people cashiers with machines, and what they found was in fact that they didn't, they weren't able to do that. They found that people needed assistance, but they found they also needed to staff them to deter shoplifting. And as stores have seen that they actually lose money through the self-checkout lanes, some stores have reconsidered using them. But as your callers indicated, some shoppers prefer and enjoy using self-checkout lanes, so they may end up sticking around stores in the future. You know, I one of the reasons I sometimes will use it is I feel like I can do it more quickly than the cashier. And then so often I find I can't, <laughs> that I'm delusional. And I wonder, have there actually been tests to see? Now, again, it's hard to do an apple to apple because often there are lines at checks downs 
so you can get through the, the self-checkout faster. But can someone who's not an expert check out anywhere near as fast as a pro? Well, there's been several anecdotal experiments, and what they've found is that when you control for the length of the line and the number of items being purchased, cashiers are typically faster than shoppers like you and me, uh, in part because they're familiar with the produce codes and where those UPC scan codes are on the packaging of what is often tens of thousands of different products in supermarkets. But it feels like it's faster when we're doing it because we're not paying attention to how much time is passing. <laughs> we're busy. So self-checkout lanes kind of bend time and make it seem faster, even if it really isn't. I love that. Bends time. Do you use self-checkout? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, people often ask me uh, and are afraid to, you know, to, to use it. Uh, we found self-checkouts haven't eliminated jobs. There's more cashiers today than there were before self-checkouts were introduced. Uh, it's just changing what people do uh, in the front end of stores. But yes, they're, they're good for scanning a couple items. But what we found, especially during COVID, is that they were not designed for those of us who are purchasing an entire cart full of products. And wh why do you think it hasn't led to a uh, decline in personnel, which I'm sure the retailers were hopeful to cut their payroll? Well, one reason is that stores themselves restricted the extent to which they use self-checkout lanes, which I think tells you something about their concerns about service. Managers told me they still wanted to offer personal service to customers who expect personal service when they shop. Uh, but another reason is that unanticipated consequences. I don't, I think we were focused so much on the jobs that might be lost. We weren't thinking about the costs of installing and operating and maintaining this technology. Let me share some more listener comments. Drew Woodland Hill says, I object to self-checkout. I understand it's helpful with a few items, but it's unpaid labor for me. I'm there working for free. I'm a cashier without getting paid. Andrew, thanks. Uh, Lisa and Glendale, I love self-checkout, except at Target. There are often no cashiers. Everyone's forced to use self-checkout. Takes forever. People have so many problems, and there's only one person standing by to give instructions. David in Hollywood says, about a decade ago, I was manager of a grocery store. When I stop elsewhere. I hated self-checkout. I felt like I was working off the clock. Now I do tend to use it because it's quicker for me, but I'd prefer to use a cashier. And Jessica and Playa Del Rey, if you're going to do self-checkout, you should get a discount because you're doing someone else's job. Greg in Long Beach says, it all depends on my mood. If I feel chatty and bubbly, I'll go for the human line and chat up the cashier. Otherwise, if I'm not feeling up to it, I'll head straight to the self-checkout line. Uh, Sessie, uh, uh, excuse me, in Hyde Park says, I don't like self-checkout, even though I'm fine with the technology. I want people to have jobs. Customers are doing the work and not getting a discount. I'd rather go through the cashier line because of this. That's Sessie in Hyde Park. And uh, uh, Jens in Los Feliz says, the cashiers at checkout can bag things better, which is why I choose to use them. That's a very good point, and I'm glad, Jens, that you raised that. Um, Sandra and Mar Vista says, I would never use self-checkout because the company is saving money on my back and the back of workers. I don't want to participate in 
that relationship. Thank you so much. Wonderful comments from listeners. And our thanks to Professor of Sociology at Drew University, Christopher Andrews, author of The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkout, Supermarkets, and The Do-It-Yourself Economy. We have much more to come in the second hour of Air Talk, and I'll tell you about it momentarily. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you'll join us tonight for live coverage from NPR of the New Hampshire primary. It's the first 2024 presidential primary, New Hampshire kicking things off. Yes, we had the Iowa caucuses. This is a primary, and we're going to have the results with NPR's terrific team starting at 5 o'clock going till at least 7 o'clock tonight right here on LAist 89.3, and you'll get all the updates as the returns come in in New Hampshire. Later this hour, we're going to open up the phones and find out what Internet rabbit holes, the most bizarre one that you've fallen into, and what led you to do that. This happens to me all the time because, of course, I'm constantly researching things and, and um have a lot of different interests, as I know uh, many of our listeners do. And I'm constantly falling into these weird rabbit holes of historic things or or you name it. So I want to hear from you later this hour. What's kind of the strangest one that you've fallen into that you never would have guessed that you would have ended up um, uh, ending up in as you were doing search? That's all coming up later this hour. But yesterday, of course, we began the program with the first of what was the sketch five-day strike by the California Faculty Association representing 29,000 professors, lecturers, coaches, librarians, and counselors in the California State University system. Then late last night, we got word a deal had been reached just one day in to the time-limited strike. With us is LA's Community Colleges reporter Julia Barajas to talk about what happened. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Good morning, Lee. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm surprised this happened after one day. Were you surprised to get the the notice that a deal had been reached? Uh, uh, very surprised. I uh, I got the news, I think, around 9 or 10 last night. Yeah. Um, and I was driving home, um, and things had to... Well, we had to get back to, like, working on the news. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, you yeah. thought your date was done? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought, fun. yeah. It wasn't. So what's in the contract? Um, there are a couple of things. Um, one is that there is a 5% general salary increase for all faculty that's going to be retroactive to July 2023. 
There are other important items too that are worth highlighting. Um, 10 weeks of parental leave, higher salary floors for the union's lowest paid workers, and other things like improved access to gender-inclusive restrooms and lactation spaces. I was surprised because the Faculty Association was asking for a 12% increase, and the university was offering 5% a year for three years, 15% total over that time. This doesn't seem to be a huge... I know it's retroactive to the middle of last year, um, in that I guess there are some protections here, but it it, it just it it's I was surprised after a day that the faculty association settled for the five percent. Does this seem like a win for either side? There's um, just like you've pointed out. There's definitely um, I've been kind of uh, observing how people are reacting to this, and some are pleased. Um, a lot are saying this is not what we wanted, um, and there. In addition to that, five percent retroactive. Um, increase. There's also in the tentative agreement a potential, like another 5% increase that could kick in this July, but that's not guaranteed. Um, and then a 2.65, sorry, a lot of numbers in the morning, yeah, I apologize. Right. Another 2.65, uh, what they're calling salary step increase, which from my understanding is like uh, an increase to the basic pay rate. So I guess the, like, like you pointed out, Larry, the framing of the proposal seems very close to what CSU management had originally uh, pitched. Um, but possibly if you, you know, add up all these other potential increases, um, it could be something substantial. So we're, we're thinking that probably a lot of faculty are out there doing a lot of math this morning. Yeah, late last night after the word came out, I was uh, exchanging communication with a, with a professor at a, a Cal State University he was saying, you know, one of the big deals here was the, the raising of the floor for the lowest income um, uh teachers, essentially. These are the lecturers, and that that was something that they really wanted, that they were able to, to get in that. Um, what are things that, that the union had asked for that don't seem to be here? One thing that um, I noticed right away, and that I've also, um, that people that I've spoken to have brought up, is that um, the um, the faculty union was calling for more counselors for, for students, and I don't see that at any of the press releases. Um, we've reached out for more information, um, and as soon as we get it, we'll, we'll make it known, but that was one of the, I guess, like most glaring thing is that there is no mention of uh, more counseling. All right. Um, yeah. Julio, thank you so much. Really appreciate your being with us and walking us through what is in the tentative agreement between the California Faculty Association representing professors and other uh, teaching-related and counseling-related employees of the California State University and uh, the university system itself. Julia Barask covers community colleges for LAist, and you can read her ongoing reporting on the deal that's been reached at LAist.com. We've had some very popular conversations on AirTalk about uh, natural gas stoves versus the new electric induction cooktops that are available now, which some people are shifting to as a way of reducing their fossil fuel footprint and also to hopefully derive some health benefits by cooking on an electric cooktop instead of one that is powered by natural gas. Well, the Washington Post decided to undertake a small-scale experiment uh, using a test kitchen in Oakland to set up side-by-side an electric induction cooking surface versus 
a natural gas stove to see what the difference would be with indoor pollutants. Joining us is climate advice columnist for The Washington Post, Mike Corrin. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure to be here. This is such a great idea to do this and Thank and you. to test it. Just uh, real briefly lay out the parameters of, of what you did in this test kitchen. Sure. So, you know, we really tried to create a test kitchen that uh, reflected what a lot of Americans were dealing with in maybe older homes or smaller kitchens. And so uh, we actually found a kitchen in Oakland that had uh, a gas stove and it had some ventilation, some windows, some hoods. But um, we set up sensors all around that room, about 12 sensors, and then compared uh, an induction, uh, a portable induction cooktop, as well as the gas stove for various scenarios. So cooking pasta, making burgers, and then measuring the pollutants. Now, uh, there are pollutants that are given off in cooking uh, using gas stoves like uh, NO2, nitrogen dioxide, formaldehyde, and benzene. There are particulates that people inhale, which can be uh, a health problem. Um, are, are some of these things um, shared uh, phenomenon between both induction and natural gas? Yeah, it's a great question. When you're burning natural gas, you're burning a fossil fuel called methane. And every time you do that, it creates a lot of pollutants that you might find from any other, you know, combustion source, as you said. And the two major ones, uh, or the major one is going to be uh, nitrogen dioxide, which is an irritant implicated in asthma and other respiratory problems. And that is absent in all electric cooking, because essentially you're just using clean electrons. On the other hand, um, food, cooking food of any sort, is going to be um, produce pollutants. And those are called particulates, usually PM2.5 or PM10. And in that case, you're seeing um, small, very microscopic uh, particles of soot or, or oil or other um, other particles go into the air. And so that's a common pollutant. So, so the particulates are given off by the food, what's in the pan itself that's being cooked as opposed to the fuel source. That's right. And and those those are both those are both sort of health implications health risks. So both the nitrogen dioxide and all the other cocktail of emissions from from burning methane and then the the particulates which are, are released by any any food at all. Uh, joining us is Mike Corrin, climate advice columnist for The Washington Post. We're talking about his recent column, Are Induction Stoves That Much Safer Than Gas? We tested them. And joining us, the director of Roundhouse One, a technology analytics lab based in San Francisco, Archana Ramachandran. Thank you so much, Archana, for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Um, so share with us, how did you set up your, your test kitchen here to try and control the variables? Um, firstly, thank you so much for having me on the show, Gary. It's uh, Larry, it's quite fitting that we're on air talk discussing air itself. Yes. And uh, to answer your question, um, so we picked, like Michael mentioned, we picked a typical kitchen in Oakland. Uh, it wasn't, it we, and by typical, I mean something that didn't have bay windows or uh, an aisle. It was just, you know, a regular Joe's kitchen. And um, the way that we control variables is the main, the main uh, point of air source is a window right next to the um, gas stove. So controlling when we we open that window or shut that window, that was the main uh, control variable. Other than that, it is what we measured, which is like air circulating in that kitchen, however it circulated. So we had sensors on either sides of the gas stove. We also had one across from the gas stove. 
um, just to make sure that we captured um, the pollutants as they diffused in that space. And what were the sensors calibrated to detect? Um, so we had about 12 sensors deployed. These sensors were uh, picking up uh, particulate matter of sizes 2.5 and 10. Uh, they were also picking up total volatile organic compounds, and um, there was one that was capturing nitrogen dioxide. Additionally, we, we measured temperature, humidity, um, and carbon dioxide just to make sure that those, those other variables were pretty uh, consistent throughout the test. Uh, and didn't cause any interference with the data. Um, but yes, the main air quality sensors were particulate matter, total volatile organic compounds, and nitrogen dioxide. You mentioned that venting and windows were available to disperse particulates or, or uh, uh, NO2 in the air. But what about the hood itself? Because they come in such you know different sizes and varieties. You've got some that are quite large, come down, and really you know not much of 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 the smoke uh, and particulates can escape from. You've got others that uh, have a microwave and the fan is in the bottom of the microwave. Sometimes those do vent up and outside. Sometimes they don't and are just filtered uh, in the unit itself. So what was the fan like in in this kitchen in Oakland? Michael, do you want to take that one? Sure, I will. Um, So this did have actually a, a fan, an event that went outdoors. And so you had a relatively good hood that was um, that was uh, able to vent to the outdoors. And we actually ran these experiments before uh, with vent and without ventilation. Um, and we found that it did help, but not nearly as much as expected. And so mm-hmm. um, we, we ran that consistently on, on the experiments. And because of the size of it, uh, it just wasn't able to handle all the pollutants uh, during cooking. That said, um, there are vents that do work relatively well if they're sized properly, they vent to the outdoors and they have a little bit of a scoop. The ones that are recirculating, like you mentioned, that are basically the bottom of a microwave, have not been shown to be particularly effective. All right. So, Mike, let's talk about NO2 and what the levels were. And as you said earlier, you're not going to see NO2 emissions from the induction electric cooktop because that's a, that's from the burning of the fuel in natural gas that causes those emissions. So how high were the concentrations of NO2 using the natural gas range? Um, so when we're talking on, on natural gas, uh, we saw the spikes in NO2 reach um, pretty high levels. Uh, these were considered to be for indoor air exposure for more than uh, you know an hour, quite high. So California standards for outdoor air, well, that's that's basically the standard we had to use, um, shouldn't be about above 0.18 uh, over one hour. And we saw levels peak at 0.16 and very likely would have gone much higher if we continued cooking. And mm-hmm. the good news, though, when you opened up windows, you provided more ventilation, did you see the NO2 quickly dissipate? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the takeaways from this and, and other research has been the fact that ventilation can give you many of the same benefits as just not using your gas stove. Um, it's not perfect because most people don't use their hoods very often because they're either annoying or noisy um, or they're just not very effective. But we did find that when we opened the windows and actually provided some ventilation, we saw a significant reduction in NO2. Um, you know, in some cases, you just have NO2 kind of in your home because of either a pilot light or poor ventilation. 
And of course, there are other appliances that burn methane. And in this case, we actually did find a relatively high level over time. And so it was a, a combination both of sort of the poor ventilation in the home as well as cooking over time. And so the more ventilation, the better, for sure. And and you mentioned the pilot um, for the for the gas stove because I, I thought a lot of the um, modern um, natural gas cooktops don't use a pilot to ignite. Um, mine doesn't, for example. So, yeah. where did did you take into account any NO two that's emitted by the pilot light and factor that into your analysis? We did look at some what were the potential sources, and that was one of them. Um, but we did measure for four weeks beforehand what the baseline NO two and other other pollutant levels were, and so we were comparing it against that baseline. And we it was still relatively low compared to the peaks we saw when we were cooking. So it was clear that those NO two emissions were coming from that particular experiment. Okay, and not from not from the pilot. Okay, very good. If you have questions about this study that was carried out at a home kitchen in Oakland, we're at eight six six eight nine three five. We're talking with Archana Ramachandran, who's director of Roundhouse One, a technology analytics lab, which is based in the Bay Area. Mike Corrin, climate advice columnist for The Washington Post, joining us on particulates. Much of a difference, Mike, between induction and natural gas. Um, No, actually. In that case, particulates are really a function of, you know, the cooking process and the aerosolization of small particulate matter from the food itself. Um, so what we saw was a relatively, you know, diff- big difference in nitrogen dioxide, which you would expect. But when you were cooking burgers, not boiling pasta, which really is primarily releasing H2O water um, when you're when you're processing the food, when you're cooking the food. The burgers did did, did um, have a very similar um, particulate matter levels. So it sounds like the the takeaway to me is, and this sets aside the carbon footprint issue and what's better for uh, trying to cut greenhouse gas emissions overall. But just looking at the human health issue, if people are providing for ample circulation and using a good quality, well-sized fan there doesn't appear to be a health negative with using a natural gas stove. Is that correct? I think that might be overstating it slightly. Um, what we found was that those levels, while low and not necessarily a, a, you know, an immediate risk for a healthy person, did potentially rise to the level of hazardous for someone who had a risk factor, whether that's a child, potentially has asthma, um, especially young children, someone who's older, or anyone who has a respiratory or cardiovascular issue. So it's not that um, you're correct that ventilation actually for a healthy person will probably take away much of that risk. But in my case, where I have a new son, I also have asthma, that was just not something I wanted to have in my house on a continuous basis. Um, we're running, there, there are a number of studies being run right now that are controlled studies to look at exactly how much of an effect gas stoves have on the health of people at the population level. And they expect to find that. Uh, you know, at a population level where you're seeing, you know, millions of people, you will have a higher risk um, of certain diseases in that case. But, but for the most part, yes, ventilation is going to solve a lot of your problems. And I'm so interested. 
I'm, I'm still looking for the study of those that work in kitchens, uh, controlling for smoking and other factors like that, but to see if there actually is a negative health effect for people who spend eight hours or more a day in a professional kitchen where, uh, of course, you know, natural gas dominates to see if, compared to uh, a general population, you see uh, these uh, respiratory and other effects from natural gas. Do, do you know, Mike, if any one has done that kind of a study? We have, I have not, I have not seen that. Um, what I will say is that, you know, when you look at the ventilation in commercial kitchens, it is a, at a much higher quality than what you'll find in most residential kitchens. And so there's some degree of mitigation from that, but, but I, I have not. All right. Hey, thank you both so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Really interesting study shedding light on the differences between using electric induction for cooking or natural gas for cooking. Mike Corrin, climate advice columnist for the Washington Post, and it's his piece, Are induction stoves that much safer than gas? We tested them. That's the premise for our conversation. And our Thanks to researcher, director of Roundhouse One, technology analytics lab based in San Francisco, Archana Ramachandran, joining us on AirTalk. Coming up, we continue our conversation with the candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Today, it's a deputy DA from San Bernardino County. He specializes in cold case uh, investigations. We'll talk with him about his candidacy. Lloyd Masson will be with us when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. Coming up later on, we're going to open up the phones for you to share what's kind of a bizarre uh, internet rabbit hole you found, found yourself falling into. This happens to me all the time. I start looking up one thing, which leads to another, leads to another, and, and, and I'm on to some whole different uh, strand of history or, or religious sect I was unaware of or musician I'd never heard of. Um, so I want to hear from you. What's sort of the oddest internet rabbit hole you've fallen into lately? That comes up later this hour. But we continue with our series of candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. There are a total of 12, including the incumbent DA, George Gascon. Joining us now is Deputy District Attorney in San Bernardino County, Lloyd Bobcat Masson. He works with the cold case unit in San Bernardino. Lloyd, thank you very much for being, or do you prefer Bobcat? How do you prefer being addressed? 
You know, for this, I'd prefer Bobcat. You got it. Okay, Bobcat. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, what you do as a cold case investigator first. Uh, just briefly share your background and why you believe it's professionally relevant to the DA's job. Larry, first off, thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, as a cold case deputy district attorney, I lead a team of different detectives um, right now in San Bernardino County. We focus on any cold case that occurs countywide, only homicides. Um, some we've solved have been as old as 40 years old, and then also we deal with more recent ones, 10, 13, so forth. But the most gratified thing about the job is bringing hope back to families that have given up years and years ago. And relevant to that, I think L.A. County right now, they need hope. They need hope that somebody can turn this thing around, bring back safety. Now, do you prosecute then the cases that you also investigate? Yes, it's a vertically integrated unit, so we'll do the investigation, and then we'll also proceed in court, and I'll be the one actually doing the trials also. And you've, I understand, been with San Bernardino County for about 12 years, uh, following a year with the L.A. City Attorney's Office. Um, Give us a sense of the volume, number of cases that you've investigated and prosecuted for San Bernardino. You know, I've been with the cold case unit for four years now. Um, In that time, I've set a record for the number of cases that have been filed by the unit. Um, We've taken to trial over seven homicide cases uh, since Gascon's been in office, so since 2020. Um, But the number filed is much higher, I'd say uh, above 10. Now, what are are the skills that you've garnered in your time as a deputy DA, particularly doing cold case for the past four years, that you see as applicable to leading a department this big as L.A. County DA? You know, as the lead deputy district attorney of the cold case unit, you have to deal with law enforcement constantly, both with the team that you're tasked with, San Bernardino County Sheriff's, but also all the outlying agencies, so local agencies, Montclair PD, Ontario PD, uh, other agencies also. So you've got to work constantly with law enforcement justice partners, keep them happy, and you've also got to be aware of political realities of certain cases, cases how the public perceives them, and so forth. Let's talk about um, the uh, prosecution of George Gascon in his time as as district attorney. Uh, he's entered prosecution of so-called quality of life misdemeanors. Um, what's your view about that? I think we need a reverse course on that. I think L.A. County does need someone that's going to prosecute quality of life misdemeanors. I think if you send a message that those little things don't matter, they can lead to bigger things. I think it also emboldens certain type of people that might be thinking about possibly engaging in that crime. So I do think misdemeanors are important. And if I was elected as DA, I would prosecute those quality of life misdemeanors. And would you do that consistently or would you bring a certain level of discretion? There might be people, for example, for whom those misdemeanors are more a reflection of uh, the difficult life that they're living than necessarily uh, a tendency to behave criminally otherwise. So would you uh, would you bring that sort of discretion, or, or do you think it's important to be consistent prosecuting quality-of-life crimes? You know, absolutely, Larry. I think you're touching on one of the most important points is having discretion and the proper type of discretion, which if it's something petty and nobody cares about it, I'm not going to be a stickler on that sort of thing. But at the same time, I think certain types of crimes, particularly theft, we need to focus on right now. But most important, what you're saying is you're getting at that I think we need to go by a case-by-case basis, depending on if the community cares about what that particular issue is, uh, who the individual is, are they a threat, on on and on. In that manner, I think we need to go case by case and avoid these 
kind of generalized blanket policies that Gascon is being known for. What about sentencing enhancements, uh, whether it's gang affiliation or um, use of a weapon? There are a variety of different uh, enhancements that can be uh, fought for by prosecutors when it comes to sentencing. Um, George Gascon, in, in many of those cases, has not availed of those sentencing enhancements. Is, is that something you would consistently use? I would definitely reverse course on his blanket policy of not imposing enhancements. Uh, prior to being a cold case, I was a hardcore gang deputy for many years, so I'm very familiar with the gang enhancements. And I do think it's a mistake to decide to reverse course completely on that and just drop all those enhancements. I think he is using some. I think there's there's been a shift during his time in office. But you think you would use enhancements more frequently than you're seeing the uh, department do now? Yes, particularly some of those firearms enhancements that I think he has a blanket policy on not imposing. Um, I think it needs to be a case-by-case basis, though. I think just blindly being tough on crime is just as bad as blanket policies that don't work. So I think we need to look at each individual case and say, hey, in this situation, that this is serious enough that the community is going to want us to have an enhancement on there. And at the end of the day, too, Larry, it's going to be a jury that's actually going to be imposing that enhancement if we go to trial. Just because it's alleged doesn't mean anybody has to say that, you know, they did that. And if the jury wants to say that we want to impose this enhancement on this individual because we think he deserves it, I think that's absolutely a tool that the jury should have at their avail. We're talking with Lloyd Bobcat Masson, Deputy District Attorney in San Bernardino County, where he works with the Cold Case Unit. He's candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Uh, let's talk about the death penalty, which uh, there has not been an execution now for many, many years in California. There's some who say there's no point in prosecuting a case as a death penalty because it creates all kinds of complications and there won't be an execution anyway. Others are morally opposed to it. Uh, uh, what are your views? Would you prosecute some cases as death penalty cases? This particular area, I think, shows what the voters going to get if they vote for me. It is Right now, it's on the books. I know it was recently voted on in California, so I do promise to follow the law. I personally would seek the death penalty on cases that do merit it. But like you mentioned earlier, I think this has largely almost become symbolic in California since we haven't executed anyone in a long, long time. Since 06. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm not sure if your listeners are aware that there is a multi-million dollar industry that's focused just solely on tackling and trying to remove the death penalty from California courts. And I think as prosecutors, if we don't hold the line at death penalty and say that, hey, there are certain offenses that do warrant this, even if it's not going to be actually carried through by you know, the governor, that there are certain things that we need to hold the line on. Because that multi-million dollar industry that's targeting the death penalty isn't going to go away. And if you give up on the death penalty, the next thing they're going to come for is life without parole. And I think that leaves victims in a really bad spot in California, where they're constantly having to go to these hearings and just a fight to keep somebody in custody to really show, hey, what they did was awful. And at the same time, though, Larry, I think I would reserve it, obviously, for the most awful crimes, ones that everybody can agree on. And at the end of the day, this also, it's going to be up to the jury. The death penalty, even though the DA might recommend it, it's going to come down to 12 people in the jury that are going to say, hey, we want to impose this or not. And I don't want to take that away from jurors if that's something that they want to do. Mr. Masson, I also wanted to ask you about juveniles being prosecuted as adults. That practice has pretty much been ended by um, the current district attorney. Uh, there are those who believe, with particularly heinous cases involving ju- juveniles, that there should be an option that the DA's office should have discretion uh, to attempt to try those cases in adult court. What do you think? 
I agree with that. I mean, the law does allow for it in certain situations that we can request a transfer hearing and try him as an adult. But I would follow the law. I mean, the law is that DAs can't direct file on juveniles as adults anymore. Simultaneously, though, youthful offenders, I think we need to take into account where they're coming from, how mature they are, how developed they are, before we make decisions like that. Uh, on uh, police officer prosecutions under the Gascon leadership of the department, 15 officers so far have been prosecuted. Uh, those are uh, officer-involved shooting cases in the county. That compares to just two such filings in the previous two decades. Do you think that this is a positive development for the department? I think the overall tone and the message that the DA's office is currently set under Gascon is, is not helping the public whatsoever. That said, though, the DA is separate than other law enforcement entities, and I do think we need to call foul a foul. If it's a bad shoot, it's a bad shoot. But the tone coming out is kind of putting more focus on law enforcement and saying, I'm going to put resources on scrutinizing your behavior, whereas I think we really need to focus on the number one issue, which is property crime. So going back to your original question, though, um, I don't support this kind of um, idea police shootings are out of control or anything to that effect. Well, the, the argument, of course, though, is that if uh, police uh, use lethal force in, in a way that they shouldn't have uh, and endanger the public, that it's important to hold those officers accountable. And critics have said the L.A. County DA's office hasn't taken the steps necessary to really hold law enforcement who've, who've behaved criminally, uh, hold them accountable for that. Do you think that's the case? I don't know that Gascon's actually addressed that issue. I know that one of the cases that he was going to review from years ago, um, you know, didn't end up resulting in a prosecution. And that was previously reviewed by Jackie Lacey. So I think we really need to go by a case-by-case basis. But the generalized question you're asking, Larry, about um, do you think that this general attack that Gascon is taking, I don't agree with it. I think law enforcement does need to help be accountable if they're making a wrong move, if they're going too far. But I don't think it's a huge problem, and I don't think it's something that um, is the primary issue that voters are concerned about right now. There's a great deal of dissension in uh, the deputy DA court right now in the district attorney's office um, and, and a lot of internal criticism of the current DA. If you were elected to this position, what would you attempt to do uh, to help unify the department? I think the first thing that needs to be done is we really need to improve morale at the DA's office. I would acknowledge those individuals that are brave enough to stand up to Gascon while he was in office. Some of them are even candidates. They're also running in this race right now. They're trying to take out the king, and they're putting their careers out there. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. But the next thing that needs to be done is I think we really need to get back to the core mission of the DA's office. I know everybody wants the DA to solve every problem in public safety right now. But at the end of the day, it is a trial firm. And I would speak to senior leaders in the DA's office, both in line operations and in the special units, and try and get a consensus about what is the best way to begin to heal this office and get it back on track to being number one in the nation. One of the things that George Gascon is, has um, publicly committed himself to was to try and play a major role in ending mass incarceration and trying to put rehabilitation first and prioritizing certain types of crimes over others as a part of that trying to address racial and other disparities in sentencing and imprisonment. 
Do you think that that sort of criminal justice reform is is an important thing for a DA to pursue, or do you think that it has had negative consequences? I think it's both. I think that it is something important that the DA must pursue because the public's been really clear that they want to see something different from law enforcement, and I think we need to take that heed, hear that, and do something. But at the same time, I think whatever reform that we do do, it can't be at the expense of public safety. If you're going to start breaking down the system you have, I think you've also got to replace it with something that's going to be better. And right now, what it seems like Gascon is doing is simply just lessening sentences across the board, not seeking enhancements when he can, and just generalize breaking down the system that we've had for 100 years, which, if that's your course, you need to be able to replace it with something. And I haven't seen any replacement that's increasing public safety while he's simultaneously breaking it down. And I think that's the primary issue is it's not going to be easy, but I think we as law enforcement have got to come up with something new, something creative that the public can get behind. There are critics who say that one of the problems of the American criminal justice system is that sentences are generally too long and that it really doesn't give people the chance for rehabilitation that would be in society's best interest. What do you think of that critique? I understand it. I think for violent crimes, it's not true. I've speak, spoken to many different victims' families, and if it's something awful like a murder, rape, things of those nature, I don't think the sentences are too long whatsoever. But at the same time, lower-level offenders in the past uh, I know have been punished, I think, excessively for drugs, things of that nature. But I think we've moved away from that uh, generally as law enforcement, and we're focusing on the things that really matter. We're talking with Lloyd Bobcat Masson, Deputy District Attorney in San Bernardino County. He works with the Cold Case Unit. He's been there for 12 years. And we're just about out of time. I want to give you a chance for about a 30-second uh, final statement to why you think voters should support your candidacy. Thank you, Larry. Um, as a Deputy District Attorney, I've really been trying to give families hope that they've given up years ago in the Cold Case Division. And I'm asking voters to pick me because I want to focus solely on property crimes. That's the main thing I'm running on is I absolutely want to drop the hammer on everything property crime related until that gets under control. As a DA, I promise to follow the law, but most importantly, I'm going to put public safety as number one. I want to rebuild the relationship with our justice partners, LAPD, LASO, because we've got a lot of work to do. And I want to start fresh start with that. And I also want to improve the morale at the DA's office and begin to rebuild it from there and make LA safer because we've got to get this place ready for the Olympics in 2028, Larry. Thanks so much. And and not related to your candidacy, Bobcat, is that a longtime nickname? Yes, from 2012. A mentor gave it to me. And uh, I didn't know much about Bobcats, but they're never going to attack you unless you're cornered. And I feel like L.A. voters feel cornered right now, and I want to fight for them to get this place safer. Lloyd Bobcat Masson, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Thank you, sir, for being with us. We appreciate it. We're talking with all 12 of the candidates. If they uh, positively respond to our invitation to join us, we hope to have all 12 over the course leading up to voting here for L.A. County District Attorney. It's Air Talk on L.A.S. 89.3. Just a reminder, tonight at 5 o'clock, NPR special coverage, the results of the New Hampshire primary starting at 5 till at least 7 tonight here on L.A.S. 89.3. Back in just 90 seconds, I want to hear from you. What Internet rabbit hole have you fallen into? 866-893-5722. Back in a minute.
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. You know, I'm I'm constantly falling down internet rabbit holes because I, I just find things so interesting. I get caught up, and then a couple hours later, I, it's like, how did I get here? What, what am I now reading? What did this relate to of the original topic that I was looking up? If you ever have that experience, I'd love to hear from you. What's one of the oddest? Um, arrival points in the internet rabbit hole that you fell into and what got you there? We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. What did you start looking into only to find yourself into some uh, tangent that that took you on a long and, and maybe hours long winding road? 866-893-5722 or you can email us at ATCOM at LAS.com. Please include your location and first name. This happens to me so often, but here's a great example of one. I was just thinking about this. Oh, maybe two or three weeks ago, um, I happened to see an event that was taking place at the King Gillette Ranch in the Santa Monica Mountains. Maybe you've been to that location or you've driven by it. And I thought, oh, I wonder what the history of the King Gillette Ranch is. So I start looking it up. I'm reading the Wikipedia enter. It's, it's now, a, uh, I believe it's a state park and, and open space, a part of the Santa Monica Mountains. I, I think it was the Conservancy that ended up getting it. Um, but then that made me think about, okay, who was King Gillette? I assume that has to do with the razor blades. So I start looking up King Gillette. And then it gets into how he's an innovator of the safety razor and how, you know, men always complained about having to use the strop and the, and, and the straight razor. And here's how the safety razor invented. And here's what made it affordable to mass produce it. Oh, this is fascinating. I'm reading all about how the razor blade ends up evolving. And then I read about how King Gillette developed this house many, many, many years ago in the Santa Monica Mountains when virtually no one lived there. And it was a retreat for him and his wife. But he dies after it's built. And then the house goes goes through a succession of owners, including Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who was the head of the Church Universal and Triumphant. I remember that name. I remember that sect. Uh, weren't they uh, survivalists who had a compound where people lived partly underground and gave all their money to her and the church? And anyway, so I start reading about Elizabeth 
to the Clare Prophet and her husband and the church universal and triumphant and uh, how she led this group of, of, of people who were essentially doomsday view that the world was going to come to an end. And they finally ended up abandoning what's now called King Gillette Ranch and moving to Gardner, Montana, where they got into a conflict with the local residents because they felt they were trying to take over the government of the town. You see how my brain works. So this, <laughs> I'm probably giving you too much detail of how Larry's bizarre brain works. But but this is this is my life. Uh, you know, several days a week this happens to me. And I want to hear from you if you have anything comparable of falling down that Internet rabbit hole, sharing what your experience and one of the strangest places you've ended up. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. But that's not all. Then I started looking up all these other sects that are related to the church universal and triumphant and wondering well, what kind of theological point does this come through? And I end up with with the the uh, earlier progenitors of similar sorts of theology that then the husband of Elizabeth Clare Prophet took, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name, 866-893-5722. What's the odd? And this is this is not unusual. I'm just giving you kind of a typical Larry falls in the hole. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. It sounds even crazier when I say, when I say all the different steps. Um, but I'm fascinated by so many different things, as I know, know many AirTalk listeners are. Let's talk with Erica and Sherman Oaks. Erica, what sort of research uh, internet rabbit hole did you fall into? I've gone down YouTube uh, rabbit holes with mythology and looking at, uh, you know, belief systems and the ancient cultures and, and discovering, oh, in African mythologies, they had a god of thunder and lightning, just like in Norse mythology, they had one. And then pretty soon I discovered the same thing in Aztec societies and just endlessly started surfing through that kind of content. Yeah. And, and so, Erica, how, how long did you spend on that? Oh, gosh. I mean, hours and hours. You know, <laughs> just one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, I'm looking up mermaids and the mermaid belief system in West Africa and how that made it to the Caribbean and I find this is how I learn most things I learn now is is and I wonder how did I ever learn anything before there was an internet or YouTube or Wikipedia or all these things. Erica, thanks so much. I appreciate it. 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Uh, please include your location and first name. Uh, Lucy said she, uh, our uh, line producer today, said she recently drove through Death, Death Valley Junction, where the opera house is. All right, Lucy, very good. We stopped at a rundown hotel to use the bathrooms. Later, I Googled the hotel. It's the Amargosa Opera House uh, and uh, Hotel. Then Lucy said, I went down the rabbit hole researching the hotel built in the 20s during the borax mining boom in Death Valley. Then it was closed. 
And uh, a woman named Marta Beckett bought the hotel in the 60s, renovated it. Then I fell down a hole into who is Marta Beckett. She was an actress and ballet dancer. After reopening the hotel, she performed at the Little Desert Opera House until her last show in 2012. Anyway, I'm still enamored with the story and could probably write an essay. The Marta Beckett story is a great story. In fact, there's a wonderful documentary. We've had the director on uh, Air Talk discussing it, and I'm trying to remember the name. Um, I think Disney released it. In fact, he may be listening. He's been on the show a couple times. But it's a wonderful documentary about the Amargosa Opera House and about Marta Beckett's story because in the middle of nowhere, she she decided she wanted to be a dancer and and perform for people. And so crowds of tourist buses would come out to watch her do these performances. Her, her boyfriend, who would help her put these on, would often perform in them as like comedians relief as well. So, Lucy, you picked a good one to <laughs> fall down that hole. 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Jay in West Hollywood says, I go down a rabbit hole every day for a couple hours. Who uploads all of this information? And what about all the information that isn't uploaded? Jay, I, I know what you mean. It's amazing. But... You know, my my son, Desmond, for fun, edits Wikipedia, and he can spend hours editing Wikipedia entries. Uh, I asked him to edit mine. He said, no, I don't want to. But he does all, all these Wikipedia entries just for fun. Uh, Sinclair in Laguna Beach, what rabbit hole did you fall into? Um, Larry, during the COVID um, era, um, my wife and I watched a really interesting um, documentary on the origins of 4chan and 8chan. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I went into uh, this probably 13-hour rabbit hole that I found very interesting, but came away very unconvinced as to who uh, the person might be. uh, I'm from Zimbabwe, and it's, you know, one of the guys that's put forward as being the founder is a South African. But uh, that's the first one. I'll put that aside. The second one was the origins of the Bitcoin uh, founder, a guy by the name of Satoshi. And uh, also found myself going down a rabbit hole because one of the so-called founders was supposed to be a Zimbabwean with a very, very interesting uh, resume. He's now in prison. And, um, again, maybe 12 or 13 hours on that one. So those are the <laughs> most interesting ones in my life. Sinclair, I, I, I love it. And can you describe the pleasure you get? From, to me, it's absolutely pleasurable. Can you describe the pleasure you get from doing that? Uh, Larry, I've always been, uh, you know, um, I, I, I read since the age of three. And uh, books have been my refuge. I've, I've read all my life. Um, I've prefer books to people. And um, now reading, you know, stuff on the internet, I, I, it's just like going into a library and losing yourself, uh, luxuriously losing yourself in uh, knowledge and, and uh, you know, just, it's so pleasurable, yeah. I, I can't even describe it. Yeah, I know. I, I'm with you, Sinclair. Thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Lucy found, by the way, that Todd Robinson-directed documentary that I was referring to that tells the story of Marta Beckett and the Amargosa Opera House. Uh, Amargosa, 
is the title of the film. It's it's really if, if that piqued your interest, what Lucy was was describing, uh, I highly recommend the documentary. I don't know if it's on Disney Plus or or what streaming service, but uh, it's it's really fascinating. Uh, Esther in Hollywood, Esther, share with us one of the more interesting uh, research rabbit holes you've fallen into. Oh, Larry, so many I can't even remember. But <laughs> listening to you prompted me to realize um, I don't think it's a rabbit hole. I think it's more like a, a shoots and ladders experience that, and like maybe it just makes sense that our mind wants to do that because we're kind of grasping and following the thread of like, you know, the web of life and maybe how it's all connected. And usually I feel kind of ashamed of rabbit holing, but yeah. now I'm like, well, maybe I just want to make sense of how everything's connected. I, I, that's beautiful. I like that, Esther. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It sounds better than saying I'm intellectually promiscuous. I, I, I like that, uh, inter, interconnected that way. Um, and you're right, because part of it, I think, is, is it's, it's a search to understand, and you realize how any single thing is difficult to truly understand without the context of all the precursors, all the things that it's influenced after its creation, and the people that are involved in whatever the concept or the thing is that we're looking at. Esther, thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you uh, for all the great input that you've provided. Oh, Tubi, by the way, apparently the advertiser-supported streamer that's free has Amargosa, that Todd Robinson film. All right. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing with us some of your favorite uh, Internet rabbit holes to fall into. Stay tuned. Coming up next, it's NPR's Here and Now. uh, And uh, John Horn is going to be on talking about the Oscar nominations coming up in just a few minutes. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9, right after Morning Edition with Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Have a great rest of your day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.